People say, oh, pastor, if you only knew where I worked, it's a tough place for me to be a Christian. Listen, the place you work is no different from the city of Rome and not any worse. And yet their faith is being proclaimed to the whole world. This is Search the Scriptures, a study of God's Word with your teacher, Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the lead pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We've just recently begun a study of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. We've looked at this amazing man of God and seen the calling on his life to share the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And last time, beginning in chapter 1, verse 5, we began to see that same calling is put on those who have come to Christ. The Bible in this passage refers to these as the called. Paul also referred to his audience as beloved. As we pick up in verse 7, Dr. Brogy examines to whom this refers, and then we'll look at Paul's reference to believers as saints. To all who are beloved of God in Rome. Now, some of your translations loosely say loved. That's why I want to encourage you to get the New American Standard. It's like the old King James, but in modern English, because it's a very literal translation. It's not the word agapao, loved. It's the word beloved. And the word beloved is actually a verb. It can be an adjective or it can be the beloved. Actually, here it's an adjective, but to put it into English, we, we make it look like a verb. But understand this. While God loves everyone, he doesn't love everyone in the same way. In a general sense, God loves humanity. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Now, friend, God loves the lost. But those who are the call, those who've been saved, are his beloved. You say, what's the difference? Well, as your pastor, I love you as my brother, as my sister in Christ. But I don't love you like I love my wife, Audrey, and my children and my grandchildren. They're my beloved. And so while God loves the whole world, when we are justified, we become a part of those who are beloved of God. And again, it's another major reason in the New Testament as to why you are secure. Because the moment you were saved, God made you a member of the beloved. What are the implications? Do you remember what Jesus said in his high priestly prayer in John 17? Let me scratch your mind with it. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, underscore this, even as I loved you. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? He's saying God the Father loves you as a member of the beloved as much as he loves God the Son. If you've been saved, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. If you've been saved, there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. He cannot love you anymore and he will not love you any less. But God doesn't change us so he can love us. He saves us. He makes us a member of his beloved, and now he's committed to making us like Christ. You are described as beloved of God. God could say of you, as he said of Israel, I loved you with an everlasting love. Listen, if there were a group of believers who maybe had wondered some about how much God loved them, it certainly could be the church at Rome, not just because of their persecution, but also because an apostle 
never came to this church. At this point, there was no apostle. There was no uh, commission that was sent to go plant this church. How was it started? Well, it appears from Acts 2 and verse 10 on the day of Pentecost when Peter stands up to preach to thousands of people. We know that in the group of people were people from Rome. And so in Romans 2 and uh, Acts 2 and verse 10, it, it speaks of those who were saved who were from the city of Rome. And evident, evidently, they went back to the city of Rome and they planted a New Testament church. So Paul wants them to know, listen, you're God's special possession. He deeply, eternally, faithfully, attentively, eternally loves you. You are his beloved. Now further, beyond the called and beyond the beloved, notice the third description. They're described as saints. Uh, verse 7, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. Now if you have the King James... The NIV or the ESV, notice what it says. It says called to be saints. But you will notice that the word to be is italicized. In this day, we typically italicize words for emphasis. But since uh, the, the, the Geneva Bible that was written, we began to italicize words to indicate those words that weren't a part of the Greek text, but are added by the translator to smooth it out, to make it read better. But in my judgment, in trying to smooth the meaning out in some translations, the meaning is slightly obscured. The text literally says, called saints. The New American Standard in the Holman Christian says, called as saints. That's as close to the original in any English translation. But the original Greek says, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called saints. Listen, there is a vast difference between being called to become a saint and being called as a saint. To be called to become a saint, uh, to be called uh, to be saints, is a goal that you achieve. He's not speaking of a goal you are achieving He's speaking of a position that you have. You're called saints or called as saints. Dr. Harry Ironside, one of the great preachers in the middle of the 20th century, he was the pastor of Moody Memorial Church, and he was on a train uh, ride from Chicago to the West Coast. And in those days, it took about four days. And there in one of the cars, he sat with a group of Roman Catholic nuns. And for four days... He taught those nuns the Bible, and they were absolutely spellbound. And on the third day, he asked them a question. He said, have you ever seen a living saint? And of course, they responded, no, because virtually all of their saints had been dead for 300 years or more. He said, well, wouldn't you like to see a living saint? They said, why, yes, we would. He said, well, here I am, St. Harry. And he went on to show them this truth from the Bible. The common descriptive term in the New Testament of someone who has been born again is that they are called saints. The Greek word hagios simply means holy one. And the Latin translation of the 4th century, Jerome translated it sanctus. And it comes into our English language as saint. And so saints are the holy ones, the separated ones, and it's used of every believer in the Bible, even the worst of Christians. It's not some elitist status that you strive after. It is something that God has given you. 
Even today, sometimes when we speak of a really good person, we say, well, my Uncle Joe, you know, he was a saint. Well, in the New Testament, every Christian has been canonized. Every Christian has a halo because our righteousness is his filthy rags. And so through justification, God declares us. He separates us as holy in his sight. Our old name was sinners. Our new name is that of saints. And there's only two classes of people in the world, the saved and the lost, the saints and the ain'ts. And God, if he has saved you, he has declared you to be a saint. And it's all because of Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's because of what he did. With that said, the apostle is going to teach us the implications of this term saint. And because you have this new position, he wants to unfold a new practice in your life that your experience will begin to match your title. And so these Christians are the called They're beloved. They're saints. And why? Because of grace and peace. Look again. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to unfold for us these two words. God's undeserved favor, grace, but also the peace that God gives. Not only peace with God, but peace among others in the body of Christ because God has removed the dividing wall between the ethnic groups of the world. And so Paul is wanting us just to begin to think about these terms as he unfolds it for us in 16 chapters. Remember, this book is not written primarily to convert The lost, though millions have been converted by it, is written to the saints, the believers who are in Rome. Now, beyond the commission to the Roman Christians and the description of the Roman Christians, very quickly, I want you to think about Paul's prayer about the Roman Christians. Think about Paul's prayer about these people. Several things worth noting about his prayer that if you get a hold of, it can change your prayer life. First, he prays thanking God for them. He prays thanking God for them. First of all, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now that's an impressive testimony because these Christians have lived a life of faith such that the whole world, the whole Christian world had heard about their testimony. Think about Rome in the first century. It was the Las Vegas of this day. Uh, One Historian from the first century, Seneca, described it as the cesspool of iniquity. This is the place where gladiators and gamblers and religious prostitution and superstition unfolded. This was the place where tens of thousands of people would gather in the Colosseum to watch people bloody. It was the sin capital of the world, far worse than even Corinth. It was San Francisco, Las Vegas, and Washington, D.C., all wrapped up into one. Tacitus, an ancient historian of the day, writes, into Rome flows all the things that are vile and abominable and where they are encouraged. And we will see Paul in 24 to 32 describe that gross immorality that is literally encouraged how these sinners become evangelists for further sin. It's a place of gross immorality. It is a place where homosexuality was open and unashamed, and yet these Christians were able to make it. Their faith, the difference in their life was known throughout the whole world. People say, oh, pastor, 
If you only knew where I worked, it's a tough place for me to be a Christian. Listen, the place you work is no different from the city of Rome and not any worse. And yet their faith is being proclaimed to the whole world. Now, if you want a good definition of intercessory prayer, this is a prime example. Notice here, it is prayer to God the Father, through the Son, and for others. He says, first of all, not I thank God, but I thank my God, because he knew him personally. He's on praying ground. So he prays to the Father. Second, he prays through Jesus Christ. What does it mean to pray through Jesus Christ? Well, Jesus promised in John 14, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So to ask something in Jesus' name is to ask for something that is for his glory. And so you, you pray that his will will be accomplished, that he might be honored. But it is also in the New Testament, as Paul will help us to see, praying in his righteousness. Are there ever times when you feel more worthy to pray than others? Maybe you have a good week and you've had a consistent quiet time and a, a close walk with the Lord, a, a prayer life that was uh, throughout the day and you witness to many people and you memorize scripture and you think, oh, I can pray tonight. And then there are other times when maybe it hasn't been so good and you say, I don't even feel worthy to pray. If you think that your access to the Father is based on your performance, then you are not praying in Jesus' name. You are praying in your own name. The only reason we have access to the Father is through Jesus Christ, His Son. But notice also, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. Paul prayed for others, and one of the reasons his ministry was so very successful is that he was a man of intercessory prayer. Now, I don't know of anything that's more needed in most of our lives and in most churches. And I don't know of anything that is more talked about by more Christians and by most churches. Now, most of us are, are faithless enough to pray for our family and our friends and our co-workers, much less to pray for, for people we don't even know. These are people Paul had never seen. He didn't plant the church at Rome. He hadn't even been there yet. But he prayed unceasingly. And so point B there in your outline, he prays fervently for them. Notice verse 9. For God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. God himself knew the secret of Paul's heart. And God is witness that what he writes is true. I remember the first time God ministered this verse to me. I was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ at the University of North Carolina. And this friend said, not pastor, I want a pastor then. Uh, Carl, would you pray for me tomorrow? I've got this event and it's really important. I want you to pray for me. And I said, Robert, I will pray for you. And then the next day the event was passed. And I realized I hadn't prayed for him. And so I've learned over the years it's better not to say, you'll pray for someone if you won't. It's better to say, well, listen, if God brings it to my mind, I'll pray for you. Or even better, as I often do on Sundays when I'm inundated with requests, I say, well, let's pray for it right now because I don't want to forget it. We have access right now immediately to the throne of grace. And you bow with that person in prayer. Unfortunately, in our day, the phrase, I'll pray for you is almost a cliche. 
but not with the Apostle Paul. He says, God is my witness. How unceasingly I make mention of you. He practiced what he preached. He told the Thessalonians to pray without ceasing. And indeed he did for the church at Rome. And so he's thanking God for them. He's praying fervently for them. But he prays specifically for them. He prays, notice in verse 10, always in my prayer making requests, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. We don't pray to have our will done in heaven, but we pray to have God's will done on earth. And Paul says, I've been longing, I've been praying to come and see you believers in Rome, but I'm only going to come if God wills it. You get the idea that Paul longed to do something, but he waited in prayer for the hand of God to show him when it was time for him to go. And let me say parenthetically, the Apostle Paul was by no means afraid ever to put feet to his prayer to be a part of the answer. I believe it's a religious farce for you to pray for someone to be saved and you're not willing to witness to them. It's a religious farce for a church to pray to support missionaries, for you to pray to support missionaries if you're unwilling to tithe to the local church. Prayer is never a substitute for action. Prayer is what empowers our action. And Paul is saying here in this verse and the verses that will follow, I'm praying for you. I'm praying if God wills that he will give me an opportunity. And I'm praying that not only will you be strengthened, but God might use me and my gifts as an apostle to strengthen you and in the process that I might win some people to Jesus. Now remember, the book of Romans is written around 58 AD in the city of Corinth. In fact, if you go to the city of Corinth, it's like going to the Holy Land. They have a lot of historical markers. And one of the historical markers is they say, this is the place the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans. I'm certainly not convinced that that's the exact spot he wrote the letter, but indeed it's good for tourism. Uh, when we went to Israel last year, uh, we would go to one place and a church might be built over the site. And they said, such and such happened here. But I knew down the street there was another church and another church built over two different sites. And they said, the same thing happened there. <laughs> what is it? Uh, one person was in the city of Rome. And it, remember, Rome is where Paul's life ended. It was there that he was beheaded in that city. And the tour guide brought him into one church, the place supposedly where the apostle Paul had been beheaded. And he said, here in this glass case we have the skull of the Apostle Paul. The man thought, that's interesting. A little bit later in the day, late in the afternoon, they went to another church, and he said, here in this case, we have the skull of the Apostle Paul. He scratched his head. He said, I don't understand that. Over there, you said you had the skull of the Apostle Paul, and here you say you have the skull of the Apostle Paul, and this is a much smaller one. The guy said, it's very simple. The one they have is that of a little boy, when he was a little boy. <laughs> Now, you come to Israel with me, and I'll show you the fingernails of the Apostle Peter if you want to see them. I don't know the exact spot that Paul wrote the book of Romans. I don't think anyone does. But I can definitely say with dogmatism based on the book of Acts that he wrote this letter between November of 57 and February of 58 in the city of Corinth. 
And we know from the Acts of the Apostles that when he left Corinth, he headed for the city of Jerusalem. And when he got to Jerusalem, they arrested him. He ended up going to Caesarea, where for two years he languished there uh, under imprisonment. He's falsely charged. He meets uh, Felix, and he meets Agrippa. And finally, he appeals to Caesar as a Roman citizen. And in 60 AD, he sails for Rome. It took them a year. There was a terrible shipwreck. And he finally arrives in Rome in 61 AD. So the Apostle Paul is saying, listen, I want to come to you saints who are in Rome. But I want to be an answer as well. I want to be a part of the answer to my own prayer. Here was a man who was willing to pay the price no matter what. You know why maybe some of our prayers aren't, are not answered? For the simple reason that we are not willing to pay the price. We pray for a loved one to be saved, but we don't live a consecrated life before them, much less witness to them. Paul is saying here in verse 10, always in my prayer, making requests, if perhaps now at last by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. If perhaps, the King James renders it, if by any means, that's the thought. Whatever the cost, whatever it will be, it's a dual nuance word. One translation says, if perhaps, the other says, if by any means, Paul was going to be a part of that prayer if God allowed him to be. He's a man who deeply cares for people because he's a man who deeply loves Jesus Christ. Now, there are many applications all the way through this, but let me highlight three that I want you to think about with me this week. Number one, I learned from our text that God places a high priority on faith. In effect, Paul said to the church at Rome, I'm so proud of you. You are deeply committed to Christ. You have become famous for your faith. The vibrancy of your faith and your commitment is on everyone's mind. Everywhere I go, I hear about you. Now imagine how significant that is because they are in the capital city of the empire and Nero is sitting as the Caesar on the throne. And these were Christians, many who at the cost of their own life refused to bow the knee to Caesar. Only faith could do that. You know, churches are famous for different things. Some churches are famous for their architecture. Some are known for their pastors. Some is known for their organs. Some are known for their programs. Some are known for their choir. Some are known for their history. Some are known for people in the past who used to attend. Some are known for celebrities that in the present attend. But the church at Rome was known for their faith. How many churches are famous for their faith? There's about a dozen things Paul could have highlighted, and he will highlight many at the end of the epistle, but first and foremost in his mind was their faith. Let me ask you a question. What is it that impresses you and excites you about other people? What do you compliment those who are close to you for? Is it their job, their looks, their car, their title, their wealth? The godly person whose affections are on the things of God, towards God, towards God's people, towards God's purposes, towards God's commission. They are excited about a person's faith, about God the Holy Spirit working and changing an individual's life. They're, they're thrilled by a demonstration of faith. But if that's not what drives your heart, then your focus is on the wrong things. God places, number one, a high priority on faith. Number two, I also learn, 
You will probably never know in this life the full impact of your faith. You'll probably never know in this life the full impact of your faith. When Paul told these believers in Rome, listen, your, your faith is being proclaimed through the whole world, they had no idea. And certainly none of them would ever have thought that 2,000 years later we would still be talking about this church. Some of you have no idea the lasting impact you are having on that child that you minister to in Sunday school or in Awana. You may have no idea the impact you're having on that player on your team, that student in your class, that co-worker on your floor, that Marine who's in your unit, that neighbor whom you live your life before. One of my staff, Rick Forstner, emailed me this week, someone who hit our site, and this person wrote me and he said, Carl, rewind to 1978 at UNC Chapel Hill. And you have had a nerd named Joey Hoyle who is in your small group. I'm he. Tonight I was reminded of my most favorite Bible leader at a time in my life. You later got to know my brother David at the Chapel Hill Bible Church. Thanks for your witness and guidance. Another of our small group went to be George Bush's domestic policy advisor. We cherish our memories of you and what you had to say. Nothing really to report, just thankful. I had the chance to get to know you. You may not remember me, it's okay, it's been 33 years. God be the glory. You have no idea sometimes the impact you are having in the lives of people. Finally, a life that truly matters begins with a personal relationship with Christ. All the truths that we've discussed in this text this morning hinges on two words in verse 8. My God. Is he your God? Do you know God personally? Has he changed your life? If not, then you are not a part of his great commission that you are, you are not yet been given the privilege of representing him. If not, you're not a part of the called. You're not a part of the beloved. You've never been canonized as a saint. And you are certainly not on praying ground because you have yet to receive the righteousness that you need. Some of you as a child, you signed a card. You shook a preacher's hand. You got all wet. But your life has never changed. It's never been turned into the obedience of faith. And if you cannot say, my God, then you are under the wrath of God. And if your life has never been changed, you have never truly believed. And to pray in Jesus' name is a form of forgery. Is he your God? Can you say, my God? He's calling you. But will you come? To listen again to today's message from Romans 1, 5 to 10, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and asking for program ROM2. As you may have heard, the State of Israel has once again closed to tourism in light of the uptick in coronavirus cases. Consequently, our trip planned for October of this year has been rescheduled to May 11th through the 21st of 2022. 
Now this is good news for those who had not taken the first opportunity to participate. If you are interested, get all the details at searchthescriptures.org. But don't let this second opportunity pass you by. Deadline for registration is February 22nd. Tomorrow we begin a closer look at the intended audience of Paul's letter to the Romans in a message entitled, A Church with a Vibrant Faith. Join us then as we search the scriptures.